Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show in a TV exclusive. The Palestinian ambassador to Ireland talks about the war in Gaza and the Hamas October 7th attacks. We reject the killings of all civilians. It's not our morals, it's not our principles, it's not our religion. There's relief for one Irish-Palestinian family as they make it out of Gaza. The Alaga children from Dublin enjoy the comforts of a hotel room in Cairo after weeks of what their father calls darkness, fear and hunger. We'll speak to him tonight. It's a very strange feeling that they can eat and drink as much as they want today. The Thornish continued his diplomatic efforts in the region as more Irish citizens wait to leave Gaza. Also on the programme tonight, Ryan on the radio, Tuberty taking to the airwaves in London as he moves on from the RTE pay scandal. Thank you. That's all I'll say to you for your support, for the wind in my sails. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. I think the uh, best is yet to come. Israeli forces claim the body of a woman hostage has been recovered from a building near the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza, where the military has been carrying out raids to try to locate Hamas members. A humanitarian crisis is continuing at the besieged medical facility. Meanwhile, the majority of Irish citizens in Gaza are expected to get out of the war zone in the coming days. Among the 23 people to escape so far in this conflict are the Alaga family from Blanchardstown, who are enjoying their newfound freedom in Cairo. Well, just before we came on air, I spoke to Ibrahim Alaga about his family's journey out of Gaza to the safety of Egypt and how he's feeling tonight, a day after escaping the war zone. Um, mixed feelings. So um, on the positive side, we're in safety, we're back to normal life. Um, we're just enjoying the moment now. Um, but on the, on the negative side, we have a lot of friends, family, and people that we love, that we know we don't know if we're going to see them again or not. And then there's the lovely city that I was raised up in, in Gaza. It's a city now, I believe it's completely destroyed. Um, so yeah, very, very mixed feelings. You believe that yesterday uh, could have been your family's last chance to leave, to leave Akan, yeah. Eunice. Tell us about uh, that fear and the moment that you knew you would be able to leave and you would be able to flee. Yeah, so I was getting, I was getting these messages from the Department of Foreign Affairs that things will happen this week. So that's, I'm talking... Saturday and Sunday. So I was promised that we will be on the list this week. So, but not sure what day. So every single night, usually the message comes out 
around 10 or 11, either positive or negative, that we are or not on the list. And at that day, me and my wife, we were just sitting beside each other, looking at the phone, waiting for it to ring. And when it did, I saw the message. The message had, you know, some positive signs. We noticed that, oh my God, I can't express how happy we were, knowing that that was our last chance. Um, amazing, amazing. I mean, we couldn't sleep that night of happiness. But getting that message and then actually getting through the border, there was, there was an arduous journey to get there, wasn't there, Ibrahim? Tell us about that. Yeah, so once we got the message, then we started to think, how are we going to get to the border? Um, we were promised by a journalist that he would take us in exchange for documenting our exit, but it didn't work that day because I tried to call him and his phone wasn't working. The network was down in the morning. Um, so we were told that there's some neighbor around us that could help us. Um, he does that service, taking us there. And the way he used it, he, he, he ran out of fuel, but he's using vegetable oil <laughs> rather than diesel. And it just works. Um, so I saw him just putting some, some vegetable oil in the tank and we drove and the car was moving. So uh, we made it to the border. And thank God everything went well after that. That must have been an incredible feeling. Um, you posted a beautiful picture of your three kids on the bed, uh, Sammy, Eileen and Omar, and with it a poem. Um, would you mind telling us about that poem, why you chose to write it and, and what your message was within it? Just before I took the photo, they were my eldest son was asking me, "Is it, he has it in Arabic, he's saying, we're not going to have um, any bombings anymore. Uh, bombings is passive, so he was saying, no Qasif. And I was saying yes. And then the younger ones, they didn't, I don't know if they were knowing what they were doing. They were just laughing and just saying again and again that there's no bombings, no Qasif anymore. Um, and we, they were all just laughing just because of that fact. And your poem, um, first night since 50 days without fear, without noisy spying yes. drones, without hunger or thirst, without feeling yes. cold, without yeah. darkness. And then he said, thank you, Ireland. Um, within that, um, so, how much did you I, rely, I suppose, I would, on, on, on um, Irish help in getting you out? Yeah, so all of this wouldn't have happened without the Irish help, without my Irish passport and without the efforts of everyone in the Department of Foreign Affairs and the embassy in both Tel Aviv and, and Cairo. So a big thank to them. But without them, this I, I would be now in Gaza and just to let you know that that cut off of communication did actually happen. Now Gaza is totally cut off from the world. I'm trying to connect to my friends and the people that are staying in my house. I could not connect them at all. So, I mean, we were just so lucky. You've mentioned there about the mixed feelings you had about leaving family behind. And we've heard that leaflets have been dropped, in fact, over Khan Yunus. Um, yes. Warning of an offensive in the south of Gaza now. Um, so your fear is now for, uh, I suppose, your neighbourhood and your, your home. Yes, so as I said, because of that cut in communication, and that usually used to happen from the Israeli side on purpose, they used to do that. And when they did do that, you know that it, it's going to be a very, a very, 
um, a very strong night. I mean, a night that's going to have a lot of um, strikes and a lot of bombings. So now with the communication just cut off completely, no one is going to know what's going to happen. So they're just, you know, um, it's going to be some really bad nights that Khan Yunus is going to be experiencing. Um, and that's going to be difficult as well. I know for you, you are in safety, but worried obviously about relatives who are remain in Gaza and, and they cannot get out um, with this Absolutely. bombardment still going on. But you're going to yeah. be coming home and returning to Blanchestown in Dublin, to your parents, to your brother. Tell us about your, your hopes for that, uh, how much you're looking forward to that and the first thing you're going to do. Um, I can't tell you how much. I mean, I, I, I even wish my, my flight was now to Dublin. I can't wait to get back. Um, during the war, uh, we used to always sit down with the children, especially when we were feeling that they were down or bored or, you know, just to try to get them out of the mood. We used to show them our photos inside the house, the trips that we used to do in Dublin. So everyone is just waiting to go back to that normal life. And to Sami, Eileen and Omar too, must be very much looking forward to getting home to their friends and their family. Yes, yes. And Sami's school and Eileen's crash. So yes, absolutely. Ibrahim, thank you very much for joining us from Cairo tonight. And we wish you a safe onward journey to Dublin. We appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for waiting. That was Ibrahim Alaga. Well, I'm joined now from Jerusalem by your news, Europe correspondent Shona Murray for the very latest in the Middle East. And Shona, we know that the Thornish Miho Martin was in the region. Tell us about who he met um, in this uh, flyby visit and uh, the, the impact of that and the influence he's hoping to have over there uh, with this visit. Well, he was in Cairo yesterday. I think that was an important visit because obviously Cairo or Egypt is really vital to allow Palestinians leave through the Rafah border into other countries that can take them. Um, also, Cairo has been put under so much pressure from the West to try and to take Palestinians. Um, and there's a real concern from Egypt that this is a ploy to move Palestinians away from uh, Palestine and Gaza for an Israeli occupation. Um, Michal Martin then today met uh, people who've been affected by the Hamas massacre. Uh, he went to visit the kibbutz. He was in Starat, which is a town that was also attacked and infiltrated by Hamas. The police station had been burnt down. People have been killed there. Um, Starat is an area about two kilometres from Gaza. So there was some rocket fire and sirens. So his, uh, his uh, car had to take a halt and they had to sort of duck for a while. But these are the things that happen in, in, in around that area quite often. Um, he also met the Palestinian prime minister as well and the Israeli President Yitzhak Herzog, who has also got Irish relations. His great-great-grandfather was Heim Herzog and born in Ireland. So a, str a strong visit. Uh, I think he's trying to have some sort of negotiations in relation to obviously having Palestinians, Palestinian Irish people leave from Gaza, but also a discussion around what the EU can do in relation to a humanitarian pauses, uh, humanitarian aid, and try to resolve this issue and try to end this unbelievable conflict. What do you think the visit did achieve in diplomatic terms? You mentioned there he met with both the Palestinian Authority and also um, Israelis there. He would have had a number of priorities. You know, how were they received, do we know? Well, I think one priority coming to Israel, the Israeli ambassador was here um, and meeting uh, people from the kibbutz uh, to let them know that Ireland understands how traumatised they are. 
because there is a feeling in Israel that Ireland doesn't understand what has happened to Israel, that Israelis also suffer from Hamas. Um, even though that context is quite blurred, I tell people all the time that Irish people do support Israel, but also very much support uh, the Palestinian right to self-determination. Um, and so that is, I think, something that was very important for him to meet with Israelis to, to say that Ireland is a country that uh, regards international law and isn't taking sides per se, but also has deep concerns for the humanitarian crisis happening in Gaza right now. Um, and also it was in negotiations. Uh, I mean, obviously he wasn't able to talk to Hamas or anything like that. He talks to the Palestinian Authority. And that's very important to see what the Palestinian Authority can do uh, in the aftermath of this Gaza war, uh, who will take over the Gaza per se? Will it be the Palestinian Authority? What Ireland can do to try to negotiate around that? Um, so it was the start of that, and I think it was a very important visit. And uh, tell us, Shona, in Gaza, what's the situation now at the Al Shifa Hospital, where Israeli forces entered yesterday morning? Well, the Israelis had said that this was essentially the quote-unquote beating heart of the Hamas command structure. And so far, we've seen some videos from the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces, showing us uh, tunnel shafts, for example, some artillery, some grenades, some guns in the hospital. Um, now, it's not to say that Hamas doesn't operate there, but there's no evidence that this was the beating heart of a Hamas structure yet. And I think um, that's really important because obviously a hospital is protected status, on, status under international humanitarian law. There were thousands of people sheltering there, sick people there, and Israel would have to have a really important defence and justification for occupying a hospital in a time of war. Um, and it's part of the ongoing um, takeover and occupation of Gaza. Israel said that this is a war to end all wars. Their priority is to annihilate Hamas and uh, take their hostages back. And that hasn't, that hasn't even come to an end yet. So I think this war, as I'm hearing right now, could go on for the next few weeks at least. Shona Murray joining us from Jerusalem tonight. Thank you very much for that. Well, Kira Doherty spoke to the Palestinian ambassador to Ireland, Dr. Jilan Wahab Abdel-Majid, about the continuing conflict, the October 7th Hamas attacks and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Ambassador, thank you for taking the time to speak to The Tonight Show today. Can you summarise the situation on the ground for Palestinian people in Gaza right now? Thank you for having me tonight. And um, the situation is really catastrophic uh, since the beginning of this um, savage aggression, brutal aggressions against the Palestinian people on the 7th of October until now. Uh, more than 11,000 Palestinian civilians, defenseless, defenseless Palestinians have been killed. 73% of, uh, of them are children, women and elderly. Maybe, like, you know, it's not a matter of counting the people. I mean, the thing for me and for all the Palestinian, it's not a number. It's, uh, it's a stories of those peoples, of, of those families who grieve their beloved one. Thousands of stories uh, that will unfold for many Palestinians who suffered this unjust, unfair war against them. The situation every day 
pass over the past 40 days now since the beginning of this war. It's worse and worse. More families have been displaced. You talk about more than 1.4 million have been displaced uh, from the north of Gaza to the south of Gaza. And south of Gaza now is it's, it's the second, like, you know, it's, the, it's their turn actually to be displaced and where to go. The 2.3 million Palestinians who live in a very limited area, 365 square kilometers, it's, um, it's the most condensed area on this world, on Earth, is in Gaza. So the dire situation is becoming really unacceptable. And the problem of that, and what makes us as a Palestinian who see what's going on, is the failure of international community. I mean, I don't know where is the humanity. It's a big question. Um, maybe I can say what, what uh, the, the UN Secretary General said about uh, the crisis in Gaza. He said that the crisis is humanity. And really, after 40 days, the whole world failed us. The whole world, they couldn't take a decision to cease fire. What's world that we are living? I mean, what future you left for the Palestinian? What hope? What political horizon that left for the Palestinians? You yourself have lost eight family members in the last 40 days. Yes, yes. I, my cousins, I mean, two of my cousins, uh, their children have been killed uh, in the last um, couple of weeks, before two weeks. I mean, they are civilians. They were sitting in home, like they were displaced by the way. They left the house uh, trying to find a safe place. Uh, but it seems that there is no safe place in Gaza. Okay, let's look to what's happening at Al-Shifa. We have all seen the footage um, from within and the surrounding areas of the devastation that has been caused. But we've also seen the IDF producing videos of what they say is evidence that Hamas were using this as a base, a military centre, a command point. What do you say to that evidence? <laughs> Actually, I was, I, was, I was watching the news and, you know, this is no justification to attack or target the civilians. It's a hospital, it's protected by the international law. Do you accept the video as evidence that Hamas were no, using because, it as a I mean, even the people who are expert in that, they said, what is this video? It doesn't show anything. Just show some, like, you know, bag with, with, uh, with an old, like, weapon. That doesn't. Maybe someone was passing or injured or something. I'm not like, you know, I don't want to make any justification, but there is no justifications for the Israelis attacking this sacred place. It's a place that is protected by the international law. Okay, but the United States has said it has its own independent intelligence, which shows that Hamas was using al-Shifa to hide its command posts and perhaps to hold hostages. I, they I, say they have that evidence. I didn't hear that, and even though the international law said that, even though if there is any kind of this, there is no justification to target the civilians. It's a hospital. It's protected by the international law. And I was discussing this with some of the experts, international law experts. With all these, like, you know, allegations, there is no justification to target the civilians. I mean, children, like, you know, three children that who were in the occupator, they have 
have been died and they moved all of them because there is no electricity no fuel i mean they didn't show anything and in one day the investigation just show up i mean that there is tunnels um, yeah, i accept that there's no justification but do you accept that hamas have used these hospitals as a base no because i don't see anything i didn't see anything and even though i mean this so is, should be uh, like listen i mean there is misinformation has been everywhere during uh, during this war. So are you saying the United States has spread misinformation here? I didn't say anything because I didn't see, to be honest with you, I didn't see the Americans, but I, I heard many of the experts uh, talking about this, that it's not, it's not something that uh, could uh, justify this targeting of the civilians and the hospital. Um, I just want to talk about your calls for a ceasefire. We see our Tanishta is in Israel today and he had to make an emergency stop because of an air raid warning. Why should anybody believe that Hamas would respect a ceasefire? Listen, I mean, the ceasefire is something would have an impact over the civilians. This is a must. This is something that would stop a war. Would I mean, Hamas respect it? Uh, uh, definitely, I'm sure that they were respected. Actually, they were calling for this ceasefire because of the hostages that they have. I mean, they, they, there. You know that, and you heard that that there are so many calls over, like you know, the hostages to be released, and they said just like arrange a ceasefire for. I mean, to to be able to release the the. Uh, the childrens and the women who, who has been taken as a hostage. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, the people of Palestine who are suffering, the people who are in Gaza who are suffering, and I don't think any human beings on this earth wouldn't allow this ceasefire to happen. So were Hamas right to do what they did on October 7th? I'm not here to discuss what Hamas did on the 7th. I'm here representing all the Palestinians who really commit to the peaceful path when we signed Oslo Agreement in 1995. This is uh, the, the, the agreement that uh, put the Palestinians under the PLO uh, to give the right for Israel to exist, and we sign on that, and for Israel to recognize the PLO as the, the sole uh, representative of the Palestinian people. So do we, Hamas the not represent the Palestinian people in Gaza? The, uh, Hamas is integral part of the Palestinian people, whether I agree or disagree with their ideology, but they are part of the Palestinian. Every house in Palestine, they have people support Hamas. Hamas is an idea. It's like here in Ireland or in any other countries, there are people who are really different in their ideologies, their, I mean, their, 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 their political views. So they, 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 um, uh, they are part of the Palestinian people. I mean, whether the whole world agree or disagree with their ideology, this is a, a reality that we don't deny. Do you agree with their ideology? I myself, I don't agree with their ideology. I mean, um, I, I, I myself, like, you know, have family members who support Hamas. I know that friends who support Hamas support Hamas as a, as a political group. Do you, are they a terrorist organization? No, they are not. I mean, if the European Union considered them as a terrorist, the, the Security Council, they don't. So, I mean, I, I, I don't want to discuss about these issues. 
uh, of like you know how different people they um, they design it or they position uh, some some uh, some parties like as as a terrorist group. Uh, as I repeat that Hamas is integral part of the Palestinian people, whether we agree or disagree with their ideology. But this is uh, uh, a reality that we cannot deny that they are part of, of our. And okay, Hamas. You- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. you agree with what they did on October 7th? Listen, what I, I see that the oppression and the occupation by Israel to Palestine is uh, causing this problem. And I, the root causes of what happened, I mean, what happened on the 7th of October is it didn't come out of thin air. I mean, there is a, um, a cause for this. The root cause of this problem should be addressed other than this, this crisis will continue forever. Yeah, but you there seem to be saying, Ambassador, that there is justification for the killing of 1,400 people listen, on October 7th. We reject all the killings of civilians. And this is the position of the Palestinian leadership. So you reject the killing we of reject Israeli killings, people? We reject the killings of all civilians. It's not our morals. It's not our principles. It's not our religion. I mean, this is the position that all the Palestinians the Palestinian leadership took uh, that we reject all the killings of civilians and innocent people. Do you accept that the people who were killed on October 7th were innocent civilians? I mean, whoever is innocent civilians, yes, we reject the killing of all the innocent civilians. I mean, as well, I, I, uh, the Palestinians who are targeted, the 2.3 million Palestinians civilians, defenseless, who are targeted as well. This is the international uh, community responsibility to be protected. And the 11,000 or more than 11,000 civilians who were killed as well, it's the responsibility. So what do you think about those people? Who condemned on this earth the killing of the Palestinians? Artanisht, when he visited Kibbutz Beri today, said he saw inhumanity beyond comprehension. And the inhumanity beyond comprehension is in Gaza. If he will be able to go and visit Gaza, he will realize what is the inhumanity in Gaza. Not in Kibbutz Berry, I where 110 say, people I, I, died? I, I'm not commenting on that. But I mean, I would, uh, I would put this that the inhuman 
catastrophe that happened in Gaza and is happening in Gaza now should be addressed. Yes, Tanishta wouldn't be able to go inside Gaza, but he will realize what the inhumanity means in Gaza. Should Emily Hand, the eight-year-old Irish-Israeli girl who's been held hostage, should she be released immediately? I mean, she's a child, and I wish that soon she will be in, in the hands of her father and all the hostages taken by Israel, the 2.3 million Palestinians who are taken hostages by Israel to be released and to stop this war against them. But I'm talking about the yes, hostages I told you, I told you, I that know. Hamas has taken, including an eight-year-old Irish-Israeli girl. Should she be released by Hamas immediately? Yes, I said that, I mean, she's a child. I mean, no one accepts a child to be taken as a hostage. Uh, I, I, I do believe that Hamas wanted and said many times that, like, you know, uh, make the ceasefire and they will release all these um, civilian hostages. I mean, no one on earth. I'm a mother. I mean, I can't see, like, a child not to be uh, in, in the hands of, of other than her parents. I, I feel sympathy with all the children. I, I feel the sympathy with all the civilians who are, who are involved in, in a war without their... I mean, I'm thinking of my relatives, my family, my friends, and all the Gazans people who are really... has been taken as hostages, hostages for more than 40 days now. I think we deserve to live in dignity. Ambassador, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. We leave our coverage of the war there, but coming up next, uh, no more drinking up time, plans to extend Ireland's alcohol licensing laws. We debate it. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Sunil Sharp is here from Give Us the Night. And I'm also joined by Sheila Gelhini from Action, Alcohol Action Ireland because the Oireachtas Justice Committee has launched its report on plans to overhaul Ireland's alcohol licensing laws. And we're going to discuss and debate that. Um, Sunil, I want to come to you first on this. You have long campaigned for clubs and venues to be allowed to stay open longer on a par with other European cities, with cities right around the world. But this overhaul and this extension of opening hours is a long time coming in your view. Yeah, I mean, since we started, uh, thanks, Claire. Since we started the campaign, which is almost 20 years ago now, it's 2004, there was, first of all, a groundswell of support for the extension of, of, of licensing times and opening hours um, and maybe new licenses as well. There's been a lot of talk of new types of licenses. And I thought even just with the press launch that we both attended this morning, the absurdity of Senator Michael McDowell being in a conversation about the reform of licensing laws, which he was in a conversation about almost 20 years ago, which still hasn't happened. It was just, uh, yeah, it sort of struck me that nothing has changed in almost 20 years. All right, but change may yeah. be uh, coming now. Yeah. You, you're obviously welcoming that. I mean, how have restricted hours impacted the industry to date? We've had so many closures, like post 2000, we have lost up to close to 85% of our venues, of our late night venues, uh, dance spaces. And it's important to stress that these are dance spaces. They're, they're not 
glorified pubs. They are dance spaces. They are places for people to, to dance in. That's not to say that pubs don't uh, give an offering to, to local communities that they're looking for as well. But we've lost our, our dance stock. Mm -hmm our dance floors. And that's something that we wanted to revive, that we wanted to bring back. And we were very worried with the updates to the legislation in 2008 and a very damaging amendment that was then made to the theatre licence at the time that we would lose uh, venues. And we warned the government at the time what would happen. It did happen. We're now down at approximately 85 nightclubs yeah. um, in, in the entire country. So, I mean, the argument, and we'll hear from Sheila, when it comes to, yeah. you know, increasing licensing hours is, you know, there's a fallout from that you've increased drinking, you know, increased alcohol consumption and that there's a health fallout from that. What would you say to that argument? Because we've long heard it. I mean, we've heard a lot from the drinks lobby mm. um, and a lot for, for, from vintners and people like you who mm. definitely want to see this change being good for the industry. But that health concern that's yeah, there. Yeah, well, what we've seen on the ground and what we've experienced is a change in drinking culture, particularly in the entrees. You know, I think even the, the closure of a lot of venues is a testament to this. It's not all just down to the licensing laws. It's actually down to the popularity of these venues and the amount of people that are buying alcohol in, in entrees uh, venues. And there's a lot less now. It, it's, mm -hmm. it, and you're seeing this reflected now in door prices, particularly for tickets for events, which have, which have gone way up. Okay. And this is also to kind of counter the, the, the lack of sales in okay. a lot of cases. So they're getting alcohol. their money at the door because they're it's not changed. as reliant been, on alcohol it's, it's been, anymore. They're still reliant on alcohol, but I think this idea that we're going to revert to an old drinking culture where people drank as much as they did, that's just not going to be a reality. Okay, Sheila, um, we've heard from Sunil there. There are changing trends, changing consumption trends, and people just want to go out, they want to have a good time, and they don't want a time being put on that. I can understand where Sunil is coming from and, you know, I understand as well that restrictions that have been around for, for, for clubs. We're actually concerned really when you look at the broader things uh, in the bill. So it's actually pubs being allowed to stay open for an hour longer, pubs, clubs being able, um, restaurants really, and can have that extra hour, but also that it's making it much easier for pubs to stay open till 2.30 in, in the morning. So it's not just about, you know, a small cohort of, of nightclubs mm -hmm. and, and extended hours there. It's a much broader kind of picture. Plus, it's just m making it easier to get licences in general. And what we would be saying is there's a real need to actually analyse what that means. And what we're calling for and what the report this morning that was launched um, made a recommendation is to say that there should be a health impact assessment of making those sorts of, of changes. Now, a health impact assessment is a very structured way of looking at the public health implications because we so do what, know... I mean, look, and you're calling for that assessment, yes. but from your own work and your own experience, what do you think is the public health fallout from extending hours, from what we've seen, say, in other countries? What yeah. concerns do you have or what, what have we seen? Well, if we look up north, um, the, the licensing hours there were increased in October 2021. And what we've seen since that is a 12% increase in alcohol-related crime. That's just one example. We can look at many, many, many jurisdictions. And in fact, there are jurisdictions who, which extended their licensing hours and have seen the, the fallout from it in terms of increases in alcohol-related injuries, alcohol-related harm, uh, both the crime, but also in domestic violence as, as well. And a lot of countries are actually starting to say, hang on a minute, we, we need to do something about this at, at the same time. So what we're saying is that report has called for an assessment of this. At the very least, we should do it so that you could plan and say, this is maybe going to need extra guard resources. This is maybe going to need extra ED resources. We have to be able to look at this because right now we know our EDs, they are inundated. And 
at, at the weekends and especially 30% of people who present, you know, to, to EDs are there for an alcohol. Okay, so you're saying stop stop changes pending a health assessment yes. and then make what you would describe as an educated call on it. Like, Sunil, at this point, you have been waiting a long time, but would you accept that maybe we need to look at the health impact of this? Um, you know, will we see an increase in drinking? What that's going to do for emergency services? Mm crime levels yeah, and all sorts of I, I, other, I, I, mean, uh, I suppose, concerns that may be out there about all, an all-night yeah, drinking culture. Yeah, I mean, we, we've no objections in principle with the idea of a health risk assessment, but we also believe that the best health risk assessment is to change the licensing laws. That's the best way to assess the health risk is by actually See doing happens. it. See what happens. Like we've also put in um, a proposal to review these changes. That's something that we've never done here. It's something that the Department of Justice have never gone back on to actually um, ask people for their feedback on whether or not the changes or amendments they made actually worked. That's something we need to do next what time. What do you think will happen, though? You're like, see see what happens. But is, isn't it a given that if you have licensed premises remaining open for longer, people are going to drink for longer, more people are not going to drink? Not necessarily. It can actually have a positive impact in that we're going to move away from these high concentrations in the same place at the one time, which will actually have a positive impact on transport particularly and on safety on the streets. I mean, public order offences in Dublin City, which is somewhere we, sh we should be focusing on more rather than up north. And that's the first time I've heard that statistic about up north as well. I'd like to find out more about that. But uh, during the time when the, the theatre licence, which created a, a kind of a, an, an extra layer um, um, a, a, a kind of a sequence, a sequence mm. closing system in Dublin. At that particular time, public order offences actually dropped in the city centre. So there's, there's arguments for and against. I do understand where... Um, where uh, where Sheila and her colleagues are coming from on this, but we've waited a long time. I think the danger here now is we're possibly running into the final stages of this government. If this doesn't get done in the, the next six months or so, it may not happen for years. Yeah. Uh, what Sunil is saying is suck it and see see what happens, Sheila. Um, and, you know, there are, while, while, while you may be concerned about uh, the potential fallout, it may be a case that people aren't, you know, throwing drink into them before time is called and people falling out of the street at, at midnight at, at 1am or whatever with a lot of alcohol on board and all gathering well, in the street when, close, when closures happen at the same time. Well, there's nothing in this legislation that would say that it's, that's not going to happen because, you know, all it's doing is extending licensing hours so people could be falling Although out people, at the same not time. not everyone's going to stay out till 6am. Well, well, I think what we have to do is to look at the evidence, see what's out there. Now, the Minister, um, Minister Helen McEntee, has said repeatedly that uh, there has been contact between her uh, department and the Department of Health. But actually, when we did an FOI looking to see exactly what information was, was going between, there was no public health information coming from the Department of Health. It hadn't been sought uh, from, from that freedom of information request. So we're saying, why aren't you looking for this information? Why not gather it? Why not make a proper assessment and do the planning that needs to be done? Otherwise, we know who's going to be carrying the burden for this. It's going to be our public services. It's also recommended that a new levy on the alcohol industry be introduced to contribute towards dealing with alcohol harm and addiction, which we know costs the state a lot of money. Who would you like to see pick up the tab on that? I think actually in the first instance we would always say like you know, it's a polluter pays um, model that should be in, in uh, that, that, that that should be there. We were saying actually the producers, you know, the people who produce this product and who make enormous profits, absolutely enormous profits from the sale of it, 
which is effectively being subvented by the state here because we're picking up the, the cost. Yeah. Alcohol costs about 3.7 billion every year to, to the state. Excise duty brings in about 1.2 right. billion. It doesn't remotely cover the cost of it. Uh, Sunil, on that, do you think that people will be happy to, I mean, because you, you say it's going to cost the producers, but ultimately, I suppose, the consumer will pay for it. Would, would people be happy to pay more for a drink if it means that they can stay... Um, up clubbing all will, night. Will they, in what way would they pay? Like more uh, th th that they would pay well, extra. Well, there's always the a knock-on effect. If there's going sort of to be a levy, levy, who ends up paying that well, levy? But you think the levy should be picked up by the late night market by those specifically well, who are going know, to late night? I mean, yeah. if, 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 if that's what I happens mean, or it's spread across the board. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's definitely a conversation to have. What we're most interested in right now, in terms of where the reform is at, is that we have moved from what could have been a radical reform to now what was a moderate reform, which is in the current bill which could now be a minimal reform if this bill is to be split into two parts, which is the current uh, plan uh, of the government. So we're really worried about what could be essentially be a very watered-down reform by the time we actually get this through. All right, well, we'll have to see uh, where it goes. As I say, it was... Uh you know, published a while ago, launched today. Uh, where to from here? We'll have to leave that for now. My thanks to Sunil and to Sheila. Coming up next, Ryan's back on the radio. Stay with us. Welcome back. Ryan Tuberty is to revive his broadcasting career with a new presenting slot on Virgin Radio UK. The former RT star, once the station's highest earner, is moving to London for a new role fronting a mid-morning show on Virgin Radio UK, but will still be heard on the airwaves here on Dublin's Q102. I, I'm desperately excited. I, I start a new job in a new city and a wonderful station in, uh, in a few weeks' time, and... I, I don't know where to begin. I'm joined now by Business Post technology editor Emmett Ryan and on Skype by UK journalist Vincent McAvinney. You're both very welcome along to the programme tonight. Uh, Vincent, to come to you first, tell us about this job he's taking. How does it compare to the old broadcasting gig where he was top of the pile um, as an RTE presenter? Virgin Radio UK, does it have much clout? Well, it is a bit like when a big footballer player goes overseas towards the end of their career, because in UK radio, the biggest player is the BBC. That is, of course, the public service broadcaster. And then you have three main commercial broadcasters in number one position global. They have the likes of LBC, Hearts, Capital, Classic FM. Then you've got Bauer, which has magic that Ronan Keating is on and Absolute Radio. And then in third place behind them, is Wireless Group. It's owned by News UK, the Rupert Murdoch company that owns the likes of The Times and The Sun newspaper. And they've got Times Radio, Talk Radio and TV and Virgin Media. To give you a comparison, BBC Radio 2, the biggest station in the UK, gets around 11 to 12 million listeners per week. Virgin Radio gets around just over a million listeners per week. So it is very much the sort of third ranking commercial outlet uh, and it's something that News UK came slightly late to the party on the digital uh, radio explosion. Uh, and they've been trying to make up ground ever since. So it isn't going like for like, which would be you know, transferring to the BBC from RTE. But it is still a decent gig when he is, I have to say, as much as he is a consummate and talented broadcaster, a complete unknown in UK broadcasting. 
Yeah, that's quite a jump, is it, from, you know, an employer point of view being taken on. He's going to be sitting alongside some some big names, uh, despite, as you say, you know, the relatively moderate listening figures that Virgin Radio would have. There's Chris Evans there, there's Graeme Norton there. Um, a, a big jump, I suppose, to take someone like Ryan Tuberty on if he doesn't have any sort of UK profile. Yeah, it is a big jump. They obviously know that he is someone who can be completely trusted behind the microphone, although he was pretty nervous this morning. There was excitement, but a bit of nerves. He was bashing the microphone a bit, which is the cardinal sin to do in a radio studio. Uh, but when you look at their kind of key uh, times, you've got Chris Evans in the morning, you've got Ricky Wilson from the Kaiser Chiefs at drive time. Those are the two key uh, hours that they have to fill. Uh, and then on the weekend, you've got the likes of Graham Norton, but they're kind of midday presenters. It's not that high profile, sort of the likes of Jane Middlemiss and some others. Uh, and so they're really wanting to bolster that. Now, for Ryan Tabridi himself, fair play to him. You know, he leaves a very difficult situation in Ireland. No one here in the UK knows about that. It is a fresh challenge. He's going to have to start from the bottom and prove his way up. But he comes with no expectations either. So for the backers at the radio station that have taken him on, you know, it is an interesting little gamble. If he wants to build a big main, mainstream media career here in the UK, it is an interesting platform. As I mentioned, the wireless group, it's part of News UK. He could start, and some of their presenters do, write for the likes of The Times, The Sunday Times. Some of them cross over into the other radio stations. And what he'll want to try to do is, as well as The Virgin Show, probably get onto the likes of Times Radio, which is a serious news, arts and culture station. He won't want to be pulled towards talk radio and talk TV with the likes of Jeremy Kyle and Piers Morgan, where you'll have to express pretty strong and sometimes pretty inflammatory opinions. But if he manages to get his head around UK politics and make the contact that he'll need, that okay. he really won't have at the moment, right. he'll be able to make a way that way as well. OK, um, so maybe some options and some jumping off points there. Emmett, like on this, on this move, it was really, as you say, we saw the photos with his agent, Noel Kelly, and, you know, a gushing tribute, I suppose, to Ryan Tuberty as well as being, you know, a wonderful person who's, who's landed on the feet and, and, and wishing him all the best with it. Um, how, how do you think it's being viewed here? And also the fact that he, we will be able to listen to him here on a Dublin radio station. That's quite a new departure, isn't it? It is, although it makes sense given the way the UK radio system goes. And I know Vincent can explain this a bit as well. But essentially with the independent stations, an awful lot of the regional stuff has carries from sort of the main network station stuff onwards. I suppose the best known version of that would be the chart show they have in the UK, which is shared around a lot of the independent stations in the UK. So, but it's a bigger leap, isn't it, to go from, you know, broadcasting in London and, and you know, Dublin uh, listeners but, being able to take it, it in. Is, we might have to adapt his format or make it kind of have a... Well, it's going to be very interesting when he's got, like, Dawn from Woken calling in the show, like, absolutely. Uh, you know, for, but I suppose the way News UK are looking at it is it's a low-cost way of having content in the Irish market because they already have him for the UK market. He's an Irish voice. Mm. Stick him there because, of course, there'll be a weekend show focused on the Irish listenership as well, I understand, with a few of the local stations they have around Ireland. Now, how long that'll be is unclear yet. I would imagine that'll be a shorter format show. But they clearly want to keep his, like, Irish usefulness, you know, in play and so try and reach that audience over here because, like, they clearly see some benefit to having him over there, but it's a big change for him because he went from being the guy in RTE, essentially, where he could sort of call his own shot as to what was going to happen or what he was going to get paid as well in some respects, which led mm -hmm. to all of this. Whereas he is, as Vince was saying, a nobody in the UK. Like, it's a very big departure for him in terms of the comfort and the expectation he'd have in terms of what will be expected of him and how he'll be treated. So it's it's a big, a big move change. for him. And we, and we don't know what he's being paid by 
Virgin Radio either, do we? We, we don't. Uh, but, uh, you know, given the, the position they are and the overall relationship, you'd imagine it probably isn't going to match what he was on in RTE at the same time. But in terms of the options he had available to him, there wasn't really that many outside of the UK you could look at. And BBC didn't really have a need for him, and they're looking for names as well because of the scale of their audience. Like Virgin's a relatively small player, and Tuberty will obviously look at the opportunity to get into the column spots with the Times uh, print and, pub and website publications, but also the Times radio. The one thing which Vincent did allude to there, which I think he'd be afraid of, which might well happen, is he might get drawn more into the sort of talk radio type stuff where Tuberty be forced to be a bit more, I suppose, on the nose and opinions than he'd have any real desire to be based on his past experience. And so from RTE's perspective, it's a case of, well, look, he got a job, it's not our problem. But also they can go, also the show he had, which we're paying people less to host, has gone up in listenership since he left. So they're largely okay when it comes to the radio show. Yeah, uh, and interesting to see um, how it, it all does land for him um, in, in Virgin Radio and indeed what, what, uh, what becomes of that and whether it's a jumping off point to a bigger career in the UK. There we'll have to leave it for now. My thanks to Vincent, my thanks to Emmett who's joined us in studio. We're going to leave you tonight uh, with shots of the Christmas lights going on in Dublin city centre this evening. Officially it's Christmas. Good night. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic tees, soft structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim, all made right here in the USA with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code GRATEFULAG23.